Welcome to Concept to Cover. I'm Leah Nicholson, your host and book production manager. Join us on this dynamic podcast where we dive into the art of custom book publishing and ghostwriting. In engaging conversations with experts, discover the secrets to transforming your ideas into purposeful and inspiring publications. Whether you're a seasoned writer or just curious, Concept to Cover is your go-to source for insights that empower your literary journey. This week, we're joining conversation by Michael Levin, a veteran ghostwriter who's worked with the industry's top consultants, celebrities, athletes, and other outstanding individuals to help them achieve their dreams of becoming a respected author. Welcome, Michael. Leah, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. You work with some pretty high-profile individuals who've become successful in life and in business. What's your approach to their stories? I think it all comes down to listening for what they might never have expressed in words. And sometimes we are not necessarily the best stewards of our own stories. Sometimes it just takes somebody else listening and saying, nobody said what you just said, or if that were the chapter, that would be fantastic. Or if that were the title, and they're sitting there going, well, I never thought of that. Well, it's very hard to be objective about your own life experience or your own work experience. Most people think that what they do is fairly easy for them because they've been doing it for a while and they're good at it. So they just assume it's easy for anybody. So they think that it's not that difficult or not worth writing about. But the reality is that when you're good at something, everybody wants to know how you do it, why you do it, what made you so good at it. So it's really just about listening for the uniqueness that they may never have put into words of their own, but you sort of do it with them and for them. That's a really interesting characterization because I find that people are so shocked to discover how interesting they really are or how unique (laughs) they are. And when you tell them that their story is interesting and unique and special and that they have something valuable for the world to know, most people are absolutely flabbergasted. Yeah, I think that's true. I guess that's a good thing if people are humble enough not to be uh, carried away with themselves. A lot of my clients are very concerned that the book is going to be an ego play or, or a vanity project. And I tell them, I don't do ego plays. I don't do vanity books. I see books as acts of service where the author is putting his or her life experience out there to uh, business experience and body, mind, spirit, or medicine, or dentistry, or consulting, or real estate, or whatever it is. They want to put that experience out there so that other people can benefit from it. And there's nothing egotistical about that. On my website, I say it's ghostwriting, not boastwriting. Exactly. And that's definitely something I'm sure you look at when you are either approached by someone or you're approaching someone to do their story. But what other sorts of criteria do you have when you're looking at whether or not to take on a project? It's very simple. Positive person, positive message. You've got to be two out of two. And if you are, then let's do your book. And if not, then I'm sure there's somebody else out there who'll be great for you. I just want to also say that it's often not about their story. And most of the books I do are business books, but not all. I do a lot of memoirs and a bunch of sports books and all all sorts of other things. But sort of the bread and butter is uh, business books or memoirs by business people who wanted to capture their story for the next generation capture their business culture as their business is growing, or use the book as a marketing tool to demonstrate their authority. So those are the areas. So in that case, their own personal story plays a relatively small role. And it's more about what are the ideas that they have for taking away the problems and pains of a certain niche market? And what are the solutions for taking away those problems and pains? How do you do it? That's really the focus. 
I have a belief that people don't actually read books. They use books as a screenplay for a movie that's going to play in their head. And in that movie, they play two parts. They play themselves as student and they play the author as teacher. So if we go overboard with the author's story, the reader's going to be a little overwhelmed and even bored and say, okay, look, I get it. I know who I'm being when I'm being you already enough. And if we don't give enough of their background, if we skimp on that, then the reader says, if I feel bewildered when I'm trying to play the part of you, so I don't know who I am when I'm being you in my head, in this movie that's playing in my head. So who are you? So it's really about finding that sweet spot. And most of the time for business books, while the personal story is important and engaging and creates authority, it really comes down to how is this book going to make the reader's life better, business life, professional life, financial life, health, body, mind, spirit, whatever it is, how is it going to make it better? And that's the focus. And the story is an element but it's not necessarily the most important element. And so when you're really looking at that story for that person and digging in, you probably start with the general outline of what this person's accomplished. But what are some of the key elements of how you take that general outline or that person's biography or resume and make it into that narrative that really grabs people and makes them want to read more about that person? There's a bit of a disconnect because story and is not the most important thing in the books I do. It's about ideas that will make the reader's life better based on the professional experience of the author. So I don't start from a biography of the author. Obviously, I know enough about the author, but I don't think that's the right starting point. And I don't mean any disrespect. And this is just simply my approach. A lot of times we start with who is the author? Well, who cares? Because we have to look at the book from the reader's perspective. The reader's most important person is not the author. It's the reader himself or herself. So we have to focus on who is the reader. And instead of uh, saying, what should this book be about? My starting point is always, where is the reader? Now that we've identified who the reader is, where is the reader right now? And where does the author want to take the reader? A book is a tool of influence. So that by the time the author has finished writing and the reader has finished reading, the reader has moved from point A to point Z, because that's what the author thinks is best for the reader. And so the question is, where are they and where, where do you want to take them? How do you want to make their life better? How do you want to solve the problem for them? What's the problem? And how are you going to demonstrate that you solve that problem? That's really the starting point for me. It's not who is the author and it's not what should we put in the book. It's what does the reader need in order to be influenced so that he or she will think differently and act differently. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And acting as a ghostwriter for your clients, it's your job to really get into who they are, how they speak, how they talk, and sort of become them really, so that when you're writing that book, maybe their wife or their children would read it and say, oh, yeah, you know, dad wrote this for sure. How do you as a ghostwriter accomplish that task to kind of make yourself into a chameleon to be able to write like that person would and to be to become that person, really? You just nailed it. You, you, you answered the question. You're not writing about the person. You're becoming the person as if you were taking on a role on stage, you're being the, the you're you're being your client as you. I dictate most of what I do, right? whether I'm dictating or writing. I'm being the client as I'm putting words down, and that means that I'm taking on their their syntax, their word choice, 
their vocabulary, their uh, whether they have uh, short sentences or long sentences by and large, their energy, the emotions that underlie the way they speak. And you're right, the goal is that people read it and it never occurs to anyone that somebody helped them. And then you say, well, is it legitimate to ghostwrite? Is it legitimate to have a book ghostwritten? I always respond, I have a lawn. I do not mow my lawn, but it's still my lawn. And as a ghostwriter, it's my job to simply facilitate the dissemination of someone else's ideas in that person's voice. It's that person's ideas. It's that person's work and life experience. And it's expressed in that person's words and manner of expression, if I do my job properly. And as a result, the friends and family don't know there was any help. And the client is spared the uh, endless hours that the person would have to go through being locked away trying to get a book done. Books are a different kind of animal from any other writing. They're long and they're complicated. And there's a steep, there's a fairly steep learning curve. So rather than have to go up that learning curve, give me an hour. I can get 12 to 15 pages out of uh, an hour conversation. And so if we're doing a shorter book, say 100 to 150 pages, I can get the whole thing done in 10 hours. I like to say I only work with people who are too busy to talk to me. If you're not that busy, you don't need a book. And if you are that busy, how are you going to get it done? So that's why it's it's best if you have a competent ghostwriter who will not just be writing about you, but will step into your shoes, as it were, and be you as the writing process unfolds. And so as you're doing that, you are learning their syntax and sentence structure and word choice, vocabulary. You're learning that all through the interview process. Is that right? Yes. And looking at, you know, videos or anything online. I guess, you know, it's so interesting when you see someone speak, perhaps on YouTube or do a keynote speech, and you really get a feel for how that person moves and talks in the world. And then when you read their book, you go, man, that they write just like they sound. It's very casual. I feel very comfortable with this person. And you get that really warm energy. And then when you kind of find out that they had help or that someone else was able to replicate that voice, I think that people are always a little shocked by that to find out that someone can do that. And it's such an exclusive skill set. I think that people truly don't understand that something that can be done that really good ghostwriters have that ability to become that person. I think it's it's a very unique job in the world. <laughs> it's it's an unusual way to make a living, that's for sure. And I call it the greatest grad school in the history of the world because I love learning and I love people and I love words and books. So I'm sitting here all day long listening to people who are the greatest in the world at what they do and they're teaching me how they think and they're paying me to listen to learn how they think. And that's a pretty good gig. That's not so bad. I'm not, not bad. I mean, there are, there are, you know, as Bob Dole said when he became Senate Majority Leader years ago, it's indoor work and no heavy lifting. And that's how I see it. Excellent. So when you get started with a client, what does your writing process look like? How does your, how do you structure your work day to day over the course of this long and complex project? Yeah, I, first of all, I don't think of it as long and complex because I, I don't, I don't like things that are long and complex. I like things that are sh short and easy. And so do my clients. So, you know, if you give me an hour, I can have the whole thing done for you in four months. And we can have a 150-page manuscript in four months. All I need is an hour a week. An hour is 12 to 15 pages times, say, 12 hours of 
interviews, 10, 12 hours, there, there, there's your 150 pages. I start by planning the book with the reader, which consists of asking, you know, what I, what I need to know is where's the reader now? Where do you want to take them? What body of knowledge in your head will convince readers to take those steps, either in their lives or with you, if you're trying to get them to hire you or use you in some way? And the way I start, instead of saying all that, I say, okay, I'm going to begin with the Oprah question. They're like, oh, the Oprah question. What's the Oprah question? I say, I say, hi, I'm Oprah. Uh, welcome to my show. Tell me why you wrote the book. Now, at that moment, there's not a word on paper. There's no outline. There's no nothing. They always laugh, and it causes them to think. It sort of interrupts their pattern of whatever they were expecting to do. And it makes them think, well, why am I doing this? And that kind of gets at the heart of the mission of the book. A book is a tool of influence. How are we trying to influence people? How do we want them to have better lives in one way or another? And that's why people go on Oprah. It's because Oprah believes that they have something that will help the viewer have a better life. And it's the same thing with the book. So that's sort of the starting point is the Oprah question. Hi, I'm Oprah. Welcome to the show. Tell me why you wrote the book. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are taken off guard by that question. And it really does force them to think a lot harder about the book, it's all—it's always a little scary and a little desperate when they don't have the answer to that question on that first call. And you, you really kind of have to ask, why this book? Why now? Why you? And when they stumble there, you kind of have to say, okay, all right, here we go. These are the things we have to think about. So I, I think it's interesting that that's your, your very first question. And, and how do people respond to that? What, what do you do when they can't elegantly answer? It's never happened. I mean, it, it just never happened. It just, it, it's disarming. It puts them at their ease. They're smiling. They're laughing. It takes the, the tension out of it, the fear out of it. And, it and, and they stop and think. I've never had anybody come back and say, I have no idea why I'm doing this. Because if that's the case, then let's find that right now. Because uh, if we find it out four or five months from now, after you've paid for the whole thing and it's done, now you're like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Well, you know, why'd you call? I mean, yeah, I didn't call you. Why'd you call me? So, so typically they... They have an answer. There is a motivation. And I find that they're extremely glad to have a chance to answer that because instead of sort of chipping away at the margins and hoping to find it, we're just honing right in on the core issue, which is, why are you doing this? It's expensive. It's time consuming. It's a commitment. You're going to put something out there with your name. I don't say all that to them, but that's all true and they know it. So the question is, what's the point? What is the point of this? And they always have a reason, and they're typically very, very happy uh, to share that to share that reason with me. I did have a client early this year, and no matter what I asked, he had to sort of go in a negative direction, or or make the question wrong, or make me wrong, or you know, it turned in the first right first piece of writing to him, and it was a, it was a, it was a nice deal. It was to rewrite a manuscript that he'd written, and he knew it wasn't where it needed to be. And after two days of that, I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, I can't do this. So I called him back. I said, I'm sending you back all your money. It's just not going to work. You're not listening to me. I don't know if I said to him, you're not listening to me. I probably said it very diplomatically, but I just said, you know, this just isn't a good fit. And that that's happened maybe twice in five years, but it does happen. I'm not right for everybody. Not everybody's right for everybody. And, and if that's the case, so be it. But by and large, people like me on, uh, you know, during the selling process and they like me during what I call the test drive process, where we do the book plan in the first two chapters for a smaller fee, 
then they're probably going to go forward and do the whole book because uh, our first impressions of each other were positive and our continued contact was positive. So it works out. But you have to see, is somebody just open to the process? Is somebody going to be a good, you know, a good person to pitch and catch with? And I like to say, I'm not in a position where I can turn down everybody, but I am in a position where I can turn down anybody. And that's where anyone should be after doing something successfully for a while. I'm not trying to sound boastful. What I mean is that it is, I went on Shark Tank about nine years ago, nine, 10 years ago. And uh, Damon John asked me, can you do a less expensive version of the book? And I said, no. And he said, I'm out. And I said, okay, because I'm not scalable. You know, this is not this is not something that you can scale and do 500 books a year, 1,000 books a year, or something like that. And there are companies that do huge numbers of books a year. God bless them. I don't know how they keep up the quality, but I know I cannot. It's so personal. So if, the, if it isn't right from the beginning, if they aren't willing to play ball, if they don't like me, if I don't think that I'm getting through, then here's your money. Have a nice day. No, I understand that is, you know, when it's when it's not a good fit, when they don't seem to know what they're doing, it's it's a good idea to take a step back, take a breath, either figure it out quick or lose early. So what does your daily writing routine look like? You know, Michael gets up, Michael has a cup of coffee. Do you write best in the morning? Do you plan your morning around phone calls and interviews? Do you ever meet with clients in person? How does the the actual nuts and bolts of it work for you? Sure. I get up and I do my morning stuff. I've got I meditate and I do all these things to get my hair and makeup on and stuff. And then I'll go to the gym for an hour and then I'll come back. I bunch all my interview calls between 10 and 4. And that way I get to have some control over my calendar. And on occasion, there will be a client, say on the West Coast or somewhere else, who really needs four o'clock. Okay, fine, we'll do that. But by and large, I've got to, I, I, I can't, uh, they say an overprogrammed entrepreneur cannot grow. There are some clients I meet in person. Sometimes I'll fly down to wherever they are. And I flew to Miami two weeks ago to spend a day and a half with a client, just, you know, just to get to know the client and show them some love and just say, hey, you know, I'm really glad we're working together. And that's good. But by and large today, everything is Zoom. I did my first New York Times bestseller entirely over the phone. This was before Zoom. This is like 10, 12 years ago. And my second one, I met, the, I, I, he was in San Francisco. I flew up there once and met him in person once. Everything else was phone and Zoom. So you don't need to be face-to-face. There's there's no substitute for it. It's the best, but it's really not that essential. And then the other thing is that I'm I'm, I'm good at delegating. I have, I have a project manager. I have an assistant. I have an editor-in-chief. I have folks who do different things. So I'm only doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which is running the business, selling, interviewing, and getting the chapters out. That's that's about it. If, if it's not one of those things, why am I doing it, basically? Right. Yeah, I think I, I think it's just really interesting for people to, to get a better idea of that. I know from my own personal experience, when I have interviewing and writing to do, it works best for my brain if I can separate those two and have time to do the interviewing and then have time and space to do the writing separately where, you know, I'm not going to be sitting down doing the writing. And then in a half an hour, I have to do another interview. My brain just doesn't work that way. It's kind of got to be one or the other, but not both because writing is such a dedicated task in my brain that it really needs the focus of dedicated time. Well, every, everybody's process is different and it's important to know what works for you. Sometimes people say to me, do you, do you just wait for inspiration to strike? And I'm like, no, because, uh, 
you know, MasterCard doesn't wait for inspiration to strike before they send the bill or, you know, or Acura or any of those. Kind of. So people say, do you ever get writer's block? I say, no, I have writer's mortgage. And it's ghostwriting, which is a creative function, but it's a business. It's a ghostwriting business. It's an entrepreneurial business, and it has to be run on business terms. And that means that uh, everybody should be what's doing just what's in their unique ability. I don't really, I mean, I'm okay with numbers, but I'm not very good at it. My wife handles the money in the company. I don't see a penny. I say I'm in charge of cash flow and trash flow in my house, nothing in the middle. And uh, I'm a good editor, but my, my, my editor-in-chief is a better editor. And I'm okay, you know, doing my own email, but I don't because my assistant is much better at it. She's much better at scheduling. She's much better at maintaining the calendar. And even if I were good at those things, they don't make money. So the, the only things that make money are selling and keeping clients happy. Everything else is a cost. And so I have to manage my costs. But at the same time, I spend the money to have great people. Superstars pay for themselves in business. So whatever you're paying, if the person's a superstar, you're going to make the money back because you're getting your time back, you're getting higher quality, you're getting better outcomes. So, you know, pay the money, get the people. Uh, one of my clients just said to me that um, the firm, I mean, my business is basically organized like a one person, a one partner law firm where there's one partner bringing in the clients and then everybody else does whatever. And one of my clients just quoted a line from Elon Musk. He said, an entrepreneur is someone who stares into the abyss of failure every day and has to make the decisions that no one else can make or wants to make. And that's a big part of my job is running the business as, as a business. And as a result, because I'm willing to do that, the business does scale, not to a Damon John Shark Tank level, which is fine, but to a level where, where I'm able to take on a lot of work because I have a lot of people who can help me get the work done. And that's as it should be. So. Right. And so with the structure that you have around you and, and the, you know, the excellent staff that you have, how many book projects do you generally take on at once? You know, I'd rather not I'd rather not get specific about that. It's probably more than the typical individual writer could do, but not so many that I compromise on quality, which uh, you know, there's no amount of growth or there's no amount of money out there that would be worth it to compromise on quality because then my reputation is toast. Sure. That's that's totally understandable. How far out do you plan book projects? When you're looking at taking on a project, what's the average length in time that you estimate a project's going to take generally? Yeah, I, I, we talked about this a little bit, about four months. About um, four months? I, yeah, for shorter books, 100 to 150 pages. Six months if it's going to be over 200. I do I do a few memoirs a year. We've got, I've got three on this, you know, like right now that I'm wrapping up that are memoirs of older individuals who are highly successful. One owns a major league baseball team. One founded a national sportswear brand. A third is a highly successful real estate investor. And these folks are in their 70s or 80s. And actually, there's a fourth one who had a career in, in finance, and we're wrapping his up too, uh, although that's been all, all but done for a while. And those books run longer. Those are memoirs, and those are about stories, as we discussed earlier. And those run over 200 pages and about six months on those. But the typical book we do gets done in about four months. And, you know, you have to remember that entrepreneurs especially and, you know, business people, you know, we get distracted by the next shiny object. So you have to sort of hit it and quit it. You have to get in there and get the thing done before they get distracted and be on to something else. I have what I call a multi-million dollar hard drive. 
it's on the laptop I'm speaking to you over, and that was not grammatical. And on it are uh, a bunch of manuscripts that are finished, paid for, ready to publish, and I cannot get the client to push the button. Either they're, they they get fearful, whatever the critic's going to say, I tell them there are no critics, focus on the people you're going to serve, or they're, they're just uh, distracted and they're onto something else. So the, the impetus for writing a book uh, came and went. And I'm sitting here with literally millions of dollars of manuscripts from the last 10, 15 years that are good to go, but they'll probably never see the light of day because the clients are just, you know, they won't take the time to read the final draft and push the button. What could you do? I understand that happens a lot. They have some block or fear in their mind that that keeps them from doing the thing, from pushing that button, from continuing on. And sometimes they often sabotage themselves into not doing anything, which is just such a heartbreak when you've put so much time and effort and energy into making this really amazing product that you know will sing out there in the world and it will do great things, but they just have to have the courage to do it. Yep. Courage. It's underrated. That's for sure. And so you have worked with quite a few, oh, uh, let's say celebrities. Is there someone out there that you haven't been able to get that yet? Someone that you is is on your list of, you know, I can't wait to get this person or I I really am waiting for this person to return my call or who's your superstar that you uh, really want? Tom Brady. Tom Brady. There you go. Love Tom Brady. I don't know who to root for these days. My son-in-law's an Eagles fan, so so I'm rooting for the Eagles, and all my friends are saying you're a front runner. I'm like, no, I'm a father-in-law. But you know, if they weren't winning, I'd still be rooting for them. I'd just be not a front runner. But no, I, I love Brady, and it really comes down to uh, what, as I said earlier, watching great people think. So if I have the opportunity to do that, great. I've, as you said, I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of celebrities and a lot of sports figures. And honestly, if I don't do any more celebrities or sports figures for the rest of my career, it's really okay. I've sort of checked that box and I am kind of happiest with just sort of regular folks at this point. It's just easier. There's, I don't know, sometimes there can be a level of narcissism, you know, with with somebody who's a real celebrity and then they have 33 people on their team and they have 17 agents. I mean, you know, and and projects can die just because somebody on the team says, no, you shouldn't do that. Or I mean, I I had a, (laughs) there was a guy, I'm not going to name him, sports sports, uh, broadcaster. Used to listen to him on the radio all the time, you know, whenever whenever his particular sport came on. And I thought, man, I'd love to be that guy's friend. I just think he's the coolest guy. And then one day a a publicist uh, sent me an email and said, that guy is looking, had no idea that I had this feeling about it. He said, that guy is looking for a uh, a ghost. Are you interested? Like, oh my God, yes. And uh, two days later, I was sitting in a a Denny's off Route 5 in, in Orange County with that guy. And we ended up becoming friends and working together. And we put together a killer proposal. And because he was so big in network television sports, he was represented by one of the top agencies in Hollywood. And there was an impasse between the book department, which thought it had the right to market his book proposal, and the entertainment division, which did his contracts with the network. This is a long story. I hope it's interesting. And it, and that, that impasse lasted long enough for another big-name broadcaster to boot my guy out of his primary sport. And because he simply decided he wanted to do it, 
Well, at that point, the book lost all its currency and the deal never happened. So I've had that experience a few different times with celebrities, and I don't need to do it again. The other thing is that as I've gotten older, like most of the people I really look up to have died. <laughs> and I'll read HollywoodReporter.com in my spare time just to see what's going on. I don't know who half these people are, and I don't care. I just don't care. I just don't find them as interesting. And uh, I don't know. So I don't know. I mean, if Taylor Swift came knocking, I don't know her music well enough. I hear some of it at the gym. You get to a point where you say, yeah, it's not so much about being jaded. It's just about, I don't need to go down that path where you can just work and work and work on something. And then all of a sudden it vanishes because because of turf war at a major Hollywood agency or something like that. It's just, you, you know, that just gets old. So. It does. It gets old and it gets frustrating and you just don't want to play the game anymore. But yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's a hazard of the hazard of the job that it does happen. But, you know, luckily, I think you've had far more successes than you've had, uh, you know, early starts and failures for sure. By and large, things have worked out. And I don't mean to diss the celebrity community. I mean, just I've maintained friendships with a lot of my clients over the years. And just to be able to continue those friendships you know, if a game is coming on and uh, just to be able to uh, call or email with one of my buddies on the Cowboys, you know, back in the day and just about what's going on in a Cowboys game today or texting with one of the announcers uh, on Fox Sports or something like that. You know, it's a kick. I won't lie. And it, it's a real kick to to know these people. My kids get a kick out of it. So, you know, it, it, to go to games with them or, or or go to events with them, it's a nice perk of the job. And, uh, and I do, I do, uh, I do enjoy that. But by the same token, you get to the point where you say, I think I'd rather work with regular people who are outstanding at what they do and want to get the word out and don't have that sort of Hollywood sheen on them that just sort of complicates things. So, right. Right. Yep. That's totally understandable, too. So, well, thank you so much, Michael, for your time today and helping us understand your ghostwriting process and, and really your type of client who you're looking for. So um, thank you for joining us on this episode of Concept to Cover. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Concept to Cover. Find out more about the show and our guests at concepttocoverpodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Bye for now.